0: Hallelujah. How's everybody doing this morning? Praise God. Well, you guys ready for the word? Hallelujah. Let's go ahead and bow our head as we come to it. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your great love. Lord, we thank you that we can spend time in your word, Father, that your word is just as effective today as it was uh, 2,000 years ago, and even longer for some of it, Father, that it still has an impact in our lives, Lord, we can still grow and learn from it. Lord, I pray that as we come into your word this morning, our hearts are opened, our minds are open to receive what you have for us, and Lord, I pray that it finds fertile soil, that it would produce much fruit. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, hallelujah. Well, praise God. So last week, as, we were, as he said, we're going to continue on in this series in the, in the book of John. We're actually going to make it through uh, all three of the epistles of John. And today we're going to start chapter 2. And you remember last week that John was dealing with some false teaching that was going on in the church. He was dealing with a couple of things that seemed to be attacking the members that he was speaking to. And, and that was, uh, one, they were attacking either the full uh, deity of Jesus or the full humanity of Jesus. Basically, they were attacking who Jesus was and his identity. And then the other thing that was happening was there was a group of people that were coming in and either saying that sin didn't exist or that sin had no impact on your life. And as, as you know, we, we, we looked into some of this already the deity and the humanity of Jesus. We looked at that. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus was fully man and then also that he was fully God. And this other idea that sin either doesn't exist or it doesn't um, affect our relationship with God, you know, John really took and contrasted two groups of people, those who walk in the light and those who do not, those who are in darkness. Because the ones who deny sin, uh, if you deny sin, then, then you don't think there's any reason for a savior. And if there's no reason for a savior, then you have no reason to put your trust in Jesus. And as you know, that puts you in a tough position because if you don't put your faith in Jesus, then as John said, that you are in darkness. But those who recognize that there is sin in their life, those who recognize that they need a savior, which is actually what the Holy Spirit, one of his primary purposes is, is to convict us concerning sin. And that is explained by saying that, that basically it's our need for a savior, Those of us who recognize, who who heed that the Holy Spirit ministering to us, we recognize that, yes, we have sin in our lives. Yes, we need a Savior. And at that moment, we put our trust in Jesus Christ. We're born again. And at that moment, we walk in the light. And John is dealing with this because I know that if you believe bad doctrine, particularly doctrine that deals with, with heaven and hell issues, that that puts you in a bad position. If somebody tells you, hey, you don't have any sin in your life, you don't have to worry about that, and you don't put your faith in Jesus, then you're going to be walking in darkness. And ultimately, if you don't put your faith in Jesus before your last breath, you'll spend eternity in hell, away from the Savior. If you don't think you need a, need a Savior, you can't put your faith in one, and this ends up being an eternal mistake. Now, as we were reading through that first chapter in John, something you might have noticed, um, like we talked about, this is supposed to be a letter, right? But did you notice it seemed almost a little impersonal, that first chapter? It was almost like a memo. It was, it was kind of a dump of some information. It was like, it was like a, when you read it, it was almost kind of like a memo that you would put on a, uh, on a, on a, a workplace bulletin board, It was just some information that was good to know, but it didn't really seem like he was talking to anyone in specific. He was just talking to everyone. But today, as we get into the letter, you're going to see John take a a different approach. He's going to get much more personal as he's writing. He's being more specific to who he's talking to. And John is going to deal with something today that was just as important 1900 years ago, thereabouts, when this was written, as it is to us. And It's this idea that, that uh, in today's day and age, and I imagine, <laughs> I guess it's been for the last couple thousand years, this has been prevalent, but it's this idea that Christians don't have to worry about sin or this idea that, that, that Christians should be okay to sin because people get this idea in their head, well, if I'm saved, if I'm born again, I'm forgiven. I can do whatever I want because God's just going to forgive me anyway. But the truth is, is that Christians should not sin. Christians should not sin. We are to walk in the light, and we're to keep the commandments of Jesus. The truth is, is that we're supposed to live holy. God said, I am holy, so you are holy. We're supposed to be holy. We're supposed to live without sin. But all too often in today's day and age, we keep trying to justify sin. We keep trying to say, oh, no, this is a new age. The Bible was written for way back then. So these things that it says are said, no, today it's okay. And we begin to adjust things and try to to, to make it fit what we want instead of actually looking at what God said. I don't know if you know this, but what God said trumps what you want. And that's the thing. As Christians, we're supposed to live without sin. And I see so many Christians. One either just living without regard to sin, hoping that that uh, that that faith is going to take care of it, and they're going to be free to do what they want. Or the other thing I see is Christians seeing how close to sin they can get. They're like, but passed away, and I'm not touching it. I'm as close as I can get, but I'm not. What can I do?" You know, what happens is when we get, first get saved, many people, they start thinking, you know, what are the things that I can't do anymore? Because we're looking at how close we can get, but still be okay. But the truth is, as you mature in Christ, you start thinking about how can I serve and live for Him? And when you start thinking that way, how can I serve and live for Him? How can I live out the reality of a changed heart and a changed life? You'll see that your life naturally does the things that you're supposed to be doing so let's go ahead and get started in verse one. one first john chapter 2 verse 1 he says my little children i am writing these things to you so that you may not sin but if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous so like i said he kind of shifts his approach from a more generalized um almost like data dump let me tell you some things that you need to know to now like listen guys if you weren't sure that was talking to you, I'm talking to you now. And he addresses them with an affectionate term, my little children. He, he, when he, he's, he's writing this way because he really wants them to know who he's speaking to. We don't want to have that. Have you ever looked at something that's not addressed to you specifically and you go, oh, they're not talking to me. Like how many messages have you sent in and you're sitting down and you're like, oh, my friend really needs to hear this one. Anybody ever did that? They really need to hear this one. i got to tell them about it. When really the Holy Spirit was speaking to you the whole time. So John doesn't want them to get confused. One, he says, my little children. He's addressing it to them specifically. And he gets personal, like, I am writing this to you. He really wants to drive home the fact that he's speaking to him. And then we get to the primary purpose of much of this letter. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin he wants them to not sin see john may have started this letter really dealing with some false teaching that was going on he was dealing what was with what was attacking the church but his goal is is not so much to 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 address the false teachers his goal is to address those that the false teaching was attacking he wants to make sure that his disciples aren't being led astray these false teachers coming in they're not his disciples but the people that they're ministering to, or they're trying to minister, they're trying to, to lead astray, those are the people that John really cared about. He doesn't want them to be led astray, and he certainly doesn't want them to fall into the same sin as those who were teaching these wrong things. Because here's the thing. If they were to believe in this idea that, that sin wasn't really a big deal, that it didn't really matter that much, then they could slip into the trap of living in sin thinking it was okay. They could begin to practice sin and make it a part of their lives when, as we said, for a Christian, sin has no business in your life. He says, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. Christians have no business sinning. And if I, as I mentioned last week, that if, if you are a Christian and you are intentionally living in sin, if you're making conscious choices to sin, no matter what excuse you have, you need to stop it. You need to stop what you're doing. You need to confess your sins to God, and you need to repent and put your eyes back on Him. And if you're unwilling to do these things, then I think you need to take a step back and reevaluate your understanding of the gospel. The gospel was never about giving people a license to do whatever they want. Don't worry, you'll be forgiven. The gospel is about setting you free from those sins. That had control over you jesus didn't go to the cross so that we could continue in living in sin but he went so that we could be free from sin and if we truly understand this and we understand that sin has no part in our lives it has no position in our lives matter of fact the bible says that you should be dead to sin it has no part of your lives but to claim to be a christian but to intentionally sin to choose to sin is to not understand the gospel or salvation or the purpose it has in your life. Now, I want to be clear, and I'm going to clarify this multiple times in this message because I want everyone to understand uh, where I'm coming from. I'm not talking about the occasional slip-up. I'm not talking about uh, being tempted and, 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 and resisting but somehow falling prey to that temptation and sinning. I'm not talking about the occasional thing. I'm talking about intentionally living in sin. That's where you make a conscious choice where the Bible clearly says this sin and you're going to say, nope, I'm going to do it anyway. Either I'll be forgiven or it doesn't matter. Or you begin to change what you think the Bible says by interpreting it differently or justifying what is going on. I'm not referring to the occasional slip-up. And you'll know when this is happening because you don't feel right when it happens. Usually, we're either uncomfortable with sin. A believer should be uncomfortable with sin. Or if you, if you sin for whatever reason, you feel guilty. And the reason that we feel this way, the reason that we feel uncomfortable is because when you're born again, you are a brand new person. You're not who you used to be. And sin is in contradiction to who you are. What's happening is now you're going against the grain of who you are. Anybody that's worked with wood knows what it means to go against the grain. Anybody that's ever shaved knows what it means to go against the grain you feel that friction you feel that that because you're not going in line with what should be going on and that's what happens as christians when we sin it doesn't feel right because we're going against who we are the good news is john makes it clear that if we do sin we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. This doesn't mean that if you want to sin and you choose to sin, that you're covered. That's not what he's talking about. Why? He says, I'm writing this so that you may not sin. But if you do, then we have an advocate with the Father. I personally believe that it is possible to live without sin as a Christian. And when I say this to people, people get all up in arms i had so many people get offended by this because Christians sin. But the thing is, I believe that if we had a, a full understanding and revelation of what has been accomplished inside of us in Jesus Christ, that we would live without sin. Because it's been taken care of. If we would live out what was happened spiritually in our lives, if we lived that out fully, in our natural lives, what has happened spiritually, then we would live without sin. And even John, I mean, why would he tell you that I'm doing this so that you may not sin if it wasn't possible to not sin anyway? It seems like a, 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 an unneeded statement if sin was inevitable. But on the other hand, I also realize that it's unlikely. You have to understand that there's the, the what has truly been accomplished in Christ, if we lived it out fully, we would live without sin. But the truth is, is none of us has realized what has fully happened in our lives, so we do sin. Even Paul said, I have not attained it yet. If anybody was going to get there before he died, my money would have been on Paul. But he said, even I, even I have not attained it yet. And, and John understood this too, that's why he wrote this. If he, if he figured they would, they would never mess up, if they would, they would get it right from the beginning then the second part would have no purpose, right? But he says, look, I'm writing this so you don't sin, but if you do, you have an advocate in the Father. And this term advocate here is, is translated from the word parakletos, which is one of those words I talked about last week that is only used five times in the Bible and only John uses it. It's a word that actually demonstrates that, that the writers of, of, of the Johns are all one person. And usually when John uses this word, he's referring to the Holy Spirit. A perfect example is in John 14, 16. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So the paracletos is translated helper in that verse, is translated advocate in this verse. And usually he's referring to the Holy Spirit. It's a helper. It's another one that's gonna come and help. But in this case, he refers to Jesus as the paracletos, the, the advocate and if you look at this word outside of biblical writing, other than the five times John uses it, and in the Greek outside of the Bible, it, it's usually used. Uh, this is what it's usually translated to: called to one's aid in a court of justice, and that seems really fitting here because the reality is is that when we sin, God has a case against us. God has a legal case against us. We have violated His laws, and when we sin. Jesus is before God as our advocate. And he's not up there defending your sin like, oh no, this was okay. He's just up there reminding God that it's been paid for. Yes, it's a sin, but I've already paid the price. That's why he's our advocate. Our sin has been covered by, by Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ's atoning sacrifice. This is also in line with what the writer of Hebrews wrote when he was speaking of human priests, remember he says human priests are basically bound by their lifespan and they're unable to continue forever. But this is what is said about Jesus in Hebrews 7:25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Doesn't that sound similar? Because he's our advocate for all time. And then he goes on in verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. As he continues describing Jesus in verse 2, he talks about him, about him being our propitiation. And the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible says propitiation is turning away of anger by the offering of a gift. The Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church states that general meaning of the word is the appeasing of the wrath of a deity by prayer or sacrifice when sin or offense has been committed against him. So the point that John is making is that Jesus was the sacrifice. He was the gift that satisfied God's wrath towards us because of sin. When Jesus died on the Christ, on the cross, his sacrifice was for every single one of our sins, all of them, not just the sins we committed before we were saved, but even the ones that we commit after we're saved. That's the point that John's trying to make. He's a propitiation for our sins, right? Because if any of you do sin, you have an advocate, and he was the propitiation. He was the the gift that satisfied God's wrath for our sins, One of the things that people can sometimes get confused of is they think that Jesus died for our sins, but then after you're born again and you get forgiven for all those sins, what do you do with the sins that happen after that? Your future sins. But an easy way to think about this is is when Jesus died 2,000 years ago, how many of your sins were future sins? All of them. Jesus died for them all. And then not only did his sacrifice cover your sins, the sins of believers, but he says, no, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, is John trying to say that everybody's saved no matter what? No. The answer to that is, is, is a resounding no. If that was what John was trying to say, that that. that everybody's saved because of Jesus' sacrifice, and that's all it took was just that atonement, and everybody was saved automatically. He would actually contradict himself multiple times in this letter. You remember the first, uh, first chapter last week, verses 5-10 through 10, was all about people to walk in the darkness and walk in the light. They all don't get to walk in the light. Another example in First in John is chapter 5, verse 12. It says, whoever has the Son has the life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have the life. So he obviously can't mean that everybody's saved. Not to mention, if we go outside of John's writing, Paul says what you have to confess with your mouth and believe with your heart. So there's more to it than just Jesus giving his life on the cross, even though it is true that Jesus died for all sins. Even Jesus himself said you must be born again. What this does mean is that provision was made for everyone to be saved. There is not one person whose sins were not covered by the the, the work of Jesus on the cross. There is not a single person whose sins were so bad or sins were so many that they weren't covered by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. What John is actually, the point that John is actually trying to make here is the efficacy of the 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 death of jesus christ on the cross how how big it was how much it actually covers if you remember he's what he's talking about is this idea that if we do sin it's covered he's trying to really explain to them that that this sacrifice that jesus made it was a big one it covered everything sins before you got saved sins after you got saved if you if you sin you are covered we don't have to worry about was his sacrifice big enough did it do enough He says his sacrifice was so good, it was so effective, that not only did it cover all of your sins, but it covered the sins of the entire world, regardless of when it was committed. I mean, if it covered the sins of the whole world, surely it covers all of your sins, all of the sins for those of us who have put faith in Jesus Christ. And this means that from a legal perspective, Sin has been dealt with. This is why I say that nobody is going to hell because of their sin. You know, when you you see people out on the street corners with their big signs saying, because you do this, so-and-so is going to hell, that's nonsense. That's not why they're going to hell. They're going to hell because they didn't receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The provision for their sin has been made. They just have to receive it. Jesus, Jesus made a way for every single person to have eternal life if they would just say yes. A simple way that I like to explain is, have you ever been to a restaurant? Has anybody ever, or, or you go to a, uh, uh, through a drive-thru and the car behind you buys your drinks or they buys your lunch? Anybody ever had that happen? Your, your, your food is paid for. But how many of you know you could go up there and say, nah, I want to pay for it myself you could do that you could reject that that free gift of the person behind you that bought your food and sadly that's what so many people do it has been taken care of provision has been made but they consciously reject the free gift that has been given to them in jesus christ and it's such a sad thing that so many do And he continues on in verses 3 through 6. He says, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, depending on... How the translators have formatted the Bible you are reading, you would be forgiven if you thought this, "By this we know," was actually referring to Jesus in the verses before it. Matter of fact, if you look at the English Standard version, which is the Bible that I teach from, as a translation that I like to teach from, um, verses one through six are actually all in the same paragraph. Most other translations put three through six. And they start a new paragraph at chapter 3. Because actually the way the Greek is written, this by this we know doesn't have to do with the preceding verses. The by this we know deals with this phrase here, if we keep his commandments. So he's not saying, he's not saying that Jesus is our advocate, by this we know that we have come to know him because he's our advocate. He's saying we know that we have come to know him because... We keep his commandment. This by this means if we keep his commandments. So the Greek phrasing indicates that we're dealing with a a new idea and the whole point is that we keep his commandments. Matter of fact, the NIV translates it in a way that makes it clear. Shocking. But in 1 John 2, 3, the NIV says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. They lay it out clear so we understand what is trying to be said here. It's also interesting that the the him, we know him right there, it could refer to either God or Jesus. It's not actually super clear to us today in the text what he's talking about. The Bible knowledge commentary, which is actually one of my favorite commentaries to use um, as I study, it says, as often in John usage, the word him might refer to either God or to Christ. For John, Jesus is so closely linked with the Father that a precise distinction between the persons of the Godhead sometimes seems irrelevant. Fellowship is with both the Father and the Son, and to know one of them intimately is to know the other. And I agree with the commentator here. To know the Father is to know the Son. And to have a relationship with the Son is to have a relationship with the Father. So the truth is, that we have known to come Him could refer to either Jesus or, or God just as effectively. So how is it that we know that we have come to know Him? How do we know that we have a relationship with Him? It's if we keep His commandments. That's the evidence. He continues to say that if, if you say you know Him, but you don't keep His commandments, then you're a liar and the truth is not in you. Basically saying, if you say you know him, but you don't keep his commandments, you don't really know him. You don't really have a relationship with him, and you're a liar. It seems today that we're shy to confront sin in a believer's life. And so often we, we back off of it. We, we, do, we don't deal with the problems up front because we're so worried about offending somebody. And it's so easy to misunderstand grace and then begin to abuse it. This is why Paul had to address those who were thinking that if if we sin more, then grace would abound even more. Remember when Paul dealt with that in the book of Romans? Should we sin more so that grace should abound? He said, by no means. See, John wasn't afraid to call a spade a spade. If you are living contradictory to his commandments, then you cannot have a relationship with him. And I want to point out, I'm not talking about slip-ups, I'm talking about deliberately choosing to live in contradiction. Because the truth is that if we are born again, our lives look different. We don't live the way we used to. You know, and I can imagine today that if I came in with the same phrase and said, you know what, by the way you're living, you're a liar, people would get offended. People would leave the church over something like that. They would get so upset with me because I pointed out their contradiction and their sin and telling them they need to fix it. There would be people that would just leave and go find another church that will let them do whatever they want. But the thing is, your life should demonstrate a change. When you're born again, we should see fruit. But if there is no fruit, if there is no change... You know, we should really examine our hearts to see what it is we really believe. If your life doesn't look different, and I get it, for some people, they get saved and it's like a a light switch, their life is completely changed. I was more like a slow burn, but every day, it looked different. Every day, I was performing less sin. Every day, I was getting closer to God. There was change, there was fruit Are you seeing that in your life? And then he goes on to say, whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. You know, the reason why the love of God is perfected in him is because when you're born again, something in you changes. And God's love works out something in you. Your life begins to look different. You know, this is an amazing truth and one I think that we need to understand fully, but it's, it's so easy to look at this and go, oh, I just have to hit the checklist. I just have to do all the right things. And then that's when you slip into a works-based mentality where you say, these are all the things I have to do to be saved. You know, the truth is, is that grace is on a pendulum. When you look through history, how people have understood it. And on one end, it swings this way and it's all work. These are all the things you have to do and grace is completely forgotten about. And then it swings this way. And, and somewhere along the line, people are like, you know what? But there's grace. There's something more to it. And they, they grabbed a hold of it, which is a good thing. And, but the arm swung like this. And they should have stopped down here, but it swung like this. And now it's grace, grace, grace. And grace becomes cheap. And it becomes abused. And that means that, no, because of God's grace, you can do whatever you want. But the reality of it looks something like this. Because of God's grace, something changes inside of you. You're no longer who you used to be. And you begin to live differently. So out of a changed heart, out of that grace, you begin to produce good works. It's not good works that makes you perfected. It's because his love has been perfected in you by grace and by salvation, by the the change of your heart and your spirit. Good works come out of it. And you begin to keep his commandments. He said, whoever keeps his word, the love of God is perfected because God is doing something in you and it's causing you to live a different way. The moment of salvation, from a spiritual standpoint, we are perfectly pure, we are perfectly holy, and that needs to be lived out in our lives. Sometimes it takes our body a little while to catch up. Like I said, for me, it was a slow burn. It was step by step, a little more every day. There are some people who get saved and everything changes. And sometimes it's easy to become envious of those things. But we got to be careful of that too. Just put your eyes on Jesus. It's not a race with somebody else. But salvation by the grace of God and a changed heart drives the way we live our lives, live the way we live our lives and the works in our lives. So it's not good works that save us, but rather salvation in, in us changes us and produces good works. And this is how we know that we are in Him. Because our lives look different, because the work of salvation causes us to walk like Him, if we let it have its true effect in our lives, and this is evident. This evidence is evidence of a changed life, and we can see it. it says, "Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked." Because something happens inside of you, and you're not who you used to be. And then in verse 7, he says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So John just lays out the importance of obedience in the last few verses. But the question that we might ask, though, is, okay, so we have to, to follow the commands of, uh, of Jesus. Which ones is he talking about? And the good news is, is he makes it really clear. He says, it's the commandment, is the word that you have heard. That clears it up, right? So let's think about what would they have heard. So this is John. He's an apostle, and he's, in the beginning, he was he was defending him and the other apostles' teaching because they were there, right? So what would they what would they have heard? Because you know this this doesn't at least it doesn't clear it up for me. So we have to think it through. What would they have heard? The apostolic message that they would have heard From any of the apostles is that the, the life-changing Is about the life-changing work of jesus christ in his life his death his resurrection They would have been taught about what it means to receive jesus What your life should look like after you receive jesus, right? We know that paul taught about that He was always dealing with sin. Your life should look different So they were always teaching that there was fruit in the life of a believer. They were always teaching that there was change in the life of a believer because of what Jesus had done. They were to repent, that they were to be holy. These are the things that they would have heard. These are the commandments that they would have heard. And if you look about the commandments of God, they can all be summed up in one commandment. And that's to love. Jesus going to the cross was the ultimate example of love for each and every one of us. And should you think that I'm reaching a little bit, that I'm I'm reading a little bit into the the word that you have heard, one of the best ways to interpret the Bible is how? To use the Bible. (laughs) 2 John 5. So this is John writing in his second epistle. He says, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment. Sound familiar? But the one we have heard from the beginning still sounds familiar that we love one another it's not too far of a stretch i think that when john wrote this he was thinking very similar than when he wrote his other epistle the commandment that we heard from the beginning is to love and the truth is is that the 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 commandment to love is as old as the book of leviticus leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 says you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people but you shall love your neighbors as yourself I am the Lord. This idea of loving has been taught throughout the entire Bible. Matter of fact, Jesus said this that all the commandments could be summed up in love God and love your neighbor. This is because every commandment of God is fulfilled in love. If you love God, you're not going to to worship other gods. You're not going to take and make idols. If you love one another, you're not going to kill somebody you love. You're not going to steal from somebody you love. You're not going to, to covet somebody you love's stuff. You're not going to lie to people that you love. At least if you're expressing love as you should. So this command to love, is it's not a new commandment. He says, look, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. It's what you've already heard. But in verse 8, he goes, But at the same time, because if it's not confusing enough, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. So it's no new commandment. And it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. This is confusing unless you think about it. Jesus said it was a new commandment that I am giving to you. John 13, 34, also something that John wrote. Maybe this was something on his mind. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. So if this idea is prevalent through the Old Testament, through what they've always, why is it a new idea? It's new because the idea of Jesus' love didn't stem from a legal requirement but instead it was an overflow of the love that changed each and every one of our hearts it's an overflow from the reality of a changed heart where god loved us so much that he sent his son to give his life on the cross for us so the commandment isn't new in the sense of what it is but the reason we do it is new We have something different than the writers, than anybody before Jesus. We have God who came down off of his throne and gave his life for us so that we could be changed, that we could be new. And still dealing with this idea of loving, he begins to explain it, flesh it out a little bit more in verses 9 through 11. He says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John begins to use this contrast of light and darkness just like he did in the beginning of this epistle. And he says that whoever says he's in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Now, I don't know if this will be good news or bad news to some of you, but we're not talking biological here. We're talking about when one Christian hates their brother or sister in Christ. And why is it? Because anyone who is in the light loves. If you're walking in the light, if you're obeying the commandments of Jesus, if you are letting salvation take its due course in your body and in your life, you're going to love Because a changed heart produces changed behaviors. And the natural response to such a great love that was poured out towards us is to love others in return. I mean, how can we do anything else when we recognize the love that was poured out of us in Jesus Christ? That is the natural response to love. Now the question is, does this mean that we love everything somebody does nope does this mean that we can't disagree Nope. you know one of the the phrases that i i i I don't like and i actually got chewed out by somebody on facebook for saying this because apparently this phrase was coined by a a christian leader that i'm not i I don't ever never listened to him i don't know who he was but he came up with this term tough love or at least that's what i was told but I don't like the term tough love because I don't think there's really a such thing. It's just love. When you tell somebody they can't sin, when you, when you tell somebody that, you know, when you do something to, to discipline somebody or to, to, you know, an intervention to get them off drugs, it's not tough love. That's just love. That's just what you do when you love somebody. You take care of them and you make sure that they're getting what they need. The reality is, is that's just what love looks like. And we can disagree with People. Sometimes you might not even like people, but you can still love them. But the contrast is, for the one who loves his brother, they're in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling. So if you don't love your brother, you hate your brother, you're in darkness, but if you love your brother, you're in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling. And that's something we need to understand. If we allow hate to enter into our lives and we hate our brothers, we're creating opportunity for stumbling. And if you find yourself in this position, repent. Confess your sins to God. If you've you've sinned against another, confess your sins to them. I'm not saying you confess all your sins to somebody else, but if you sin against somebody, you should probably go talk to them, apologize, and ask for their forgiveness. And just repent. Do an about-faced. Put your face on Jesus instead of on the sin. Because if we continue in that hate, he says you're going to find out that you're walking in darkness. And He says you don't know where, this guy doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Has anybody ever walked in complete darkness? I'm not talking really dark, I'm talking complete darkness where you can't see a thing. You know what you look like when you walk like that? You're, d- you're doing this? Because you can't see a thing. And how many know that when you're in complete darkness, you'll find yourself in grave danger. You can't see the obstacles in front of you. And you could get really hurt. And that's not the position that John wants his readers to be. He doesn't want them in danger. He says, look, I'm writing this to you so that you don't sin. Don't get caught up in these things. And then we'll end here in the last three verses of the chapter it says i'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake i'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning i'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one i write to you children because you know the father i write to you fathers because you know who you know him who is from the beginning i write to you young men because you are strong and the word of god abides in you and you have overcome the evil one as, as Paul is, is finishing up this section of the chapter, he's addressing the readers by three different groups. And it actually um, ends up becoming a, a poetic section of this letter. And he's talking to the little children, he's talking to fathers, and he's talking to young men. And some have said this is a, a chronological ordering of the age of these, these people that he's, he's speaking to. You know, literally, like little children young men and fathers. Others have said, no, it's not a chronological grouping. It is a maturity level of believers. You know, these are little children in Christ, fathers in Christ, and young men. But it seems to be, if it is a chronological ordering, does anybody notice a problem with it? It's not in chronological order. <laughs> so, maybe that's not what this is. This, this is what he's referring to. So some have said, well, no, it can't be chronological because... It's not in order, it goes little children, fathers, then young men. So someone said, well maybe this is, uh, the, these groups are addressing every believer. Because how many know that in our, our walk in Christ, we all go through these different stages? So this, this was supposed to, to, to resonate with each and every person individually, because not when, they're, when they're children, they're, we, we understand that our sins are forgiven, and we know the Father. And then as fathers, as we mature in our faith, we know him who is from the beginning. We have a relationship with Jesus. And we have a relationship with the Father. And as a result of knowing that we're forgiven, as a result of having a relationship with the Father, then we are like young men who are strong. This is right to young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. And we can resonate with each and every one of these. We're forgiven. We have a relationship with the Father, and because of that, spiritually, we are like young men who are able to do battle and overcome the evil one. Either way, depending on which view you want to take, the end result is the same, and that's one of encouragement. That's just one of encouragement that we are are dealing with, in our different points in our lives whether it's all at once or or he's talking to three individual groups it doesn't matter these things are still true because every one of us will fall into these groups in our lives we're forgiven we have a relationship with the father and we are victorious over the evil one and i don't know about you but that's good news amen amen so as i close this up today there is one thing that i want to reiterate while ministering on this idea of walking in darkness and walking in light. And I said I would, I would do this a couple times. But the, the, the thing that we're talking about here, where you're walking in darkness, where you don't have a relationship, this is people that say they're Christians but are intentionally living in sin. This is not a Christian who slips up and stumbles from time to time. Because the reality of this is that none of us, are living in the full expression of salvation in our lives. None of us have attained it yet. So that means that sometimes we sin. That means that sometimes we hate our brother. Does this mean that we're not saved, that we're in darkness, that somehow all is lost? No. You just get back up. You repent. When this stuff is pointed out, either by the Holy Spirit or by friends and family or or leaders in your life, then you deal with it. You repent, you confess, and you get back up. You start moving forward again. But this is different than deliberately choosing to sin. This is different than knowing the Bible calls it a sin and deciding that you're going to do it anyway. When we choose to sin that puts us in a different situation entirely. And you might say, well, even if somebody slips up, they're making the choice. Yes, in that moment, they're making a the choice, but they're, it's, it's an occasional thing. It's a uh, succumbing to temptation. They still recognize that it's sin. They recognize that it's wrong. They don't want to do it. Even if you, you struggle with something that's so bad where you're doing it daily, but you're always resisting, you're just failing, that's different than choosing to do those things. And that's, I think, what John is, is dealing with. He does the, 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 the teaching that he was dealing with is this idea that thinking that sin doesn't matter, you could do whatever you want. If you find yourself in that group, they put you in a precarious position because you don't really understand salvation. John spends a lot of time contrasting light and darkness. And that's because living in the light is fundamental to being a Christian. If you're born again, you should look different. Your life should be changed. So church, I just want to encourage each and every one of us, let's be a people who are living out the reality of what Christ accomplished in each and every one of us. Amen?